Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. friends, uh, over the last number of weeks, um, we've been studying the life of David, right? Uh, I think I can safely say over the last number of months, we've been walking through the life of David. We've been looking at him as a man after God's own heart, something that we've kind of like uh, placed as a mantle saying, you know what, we want to strive for that. We want that to be true of us as well, that we'd be people after God's own heart. We've looked at his successes. We've looked at how he's come out. We've looked at his success. Successes is not a word. Uh, we've looked at his success that he's experienced, how he's walked through obscurity and and just uh, the, the kind of the blatant mistreatment from King Saul. We've looked at his rise to power. And then we, a few weeks ago, we got to this story that just seems so out of a place for a guy like King David, right? He seems like, man, he's God's right-hand guy. He's, he's like an all-star. He messes up here and there, but I mean, really, he's a good guy. And then all of a sudden, we get to this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where uh, he blows it big time, right? <laughs> we see this just royal mess up of King David. That's putting it very lightly, right? He sleeps with Bathsheba, commits adultery, probably rape like we talked about. Uh, we see him killing Uriah, <laughs> murder now, trying to cover this up, and it's a big, big mess, right? And so we've been walking through uh, kind of his repercussions uh, of that whole situation. We walked through how he got into it in the first place. And last week was a, a particularly interesting. We do have a podcast if you want to listen to it. But we saw uh, David coming. In, we, we actually examined the place in between 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we talked about the delay of repentance that uh, David experienced there and the repercussions of that in his life. And we talked about the importance of not delaying repentance because it doesn't get better with time. You know, there are some things that get better with time, right? I don't drink, but I've heard wine gets better with time. I'm right now in the process of dry aging a really nice primal cut of beef. So that's a big prime rib. It's like seven bones. It's a, it's a, it's a big roast, basically. You know where they get ribeye steaks from? And so it's a big ribeye. It's downstairs in the... So nobody steal my prime rib from the, <laughs> from, the free, from the freezer downstairs in the church because I'd be very sad. But right now I'm in the process of dry aging it. <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to dry age it for 45 days. And this is going to sound really gross to a lot of people, but it actually grows like a mold around it. And then you cut it off. It's kind of like blue cheese, but not. It's meat. And it is one of the most delicious things that you would ever have in your life. And it looks disgusting, so I'm hoping that just deters people from ever wanting to take it or eat it, and I can have it all to myself. But it gets better with time. And all that to say is something that does not get better with time is uh, repentance <laughs> um, in terms of uh, delaying coming to the Lord. When we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, when God's moving on our heart and there's something wrong and there's distance between us and God, uh, delay should never be an option. Delay should not be something that we look to as something positive. I want to run quickly to the throne of grace. I want to run quickly when I mess up and I make mistakes. I want to run quickly into his arms of forgiveness and not linger in a place of depravity or self-hatred because God's loving kindness is good towards us and we don't want to delay that. Does that make sense? That's what we talked about last week. And so um, we, looked at, we looked at that space in between 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and we examined some of the Psalms and we saw about how his sin and his guilt brought down condemnation upon himself, where he was living in illness and he was living in depression and just this crippling shame that he felt. And we talked about how dangerous of a place that is to live. And so the long story short is that David blew it, right? <laughs> blew it royally, as we would call it. And he attempted to cover it up, which made things worse. And then he tried to pretend like none of it happened. And he lives in this place of self-pity. And it left him empty 
feeling far from God and unable to fill God's calling on his life to be king. That was, that was kind of the summary of everything there, right? <laughs> and the biggest thing that I, I would encourage you to take away from this was that David's sin separated him. He felt far from God. Not that God had abandoned him or God had left him or that he departed, his Holy Spirit departed from him, but there was a distance between him and the Lord that was very tangible and very, uh, very notable as we read through the Psalms that were written in that period of time between the sin with David and Bathsheba and Nathan's confrontation of that sin that we're going to read about here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so, um, while we may be quick, friends, to point out the absurdity like the, of David's actions, right? We'd be like, dude, you messed up. Uh, come to the Lord. Like, run back to him. You know that he's kind. You know that he's forgiving. Stop hiding. Stop running from it. Try, stop trying to make your situation better. Um, stop trying to cover it up. God knows what you did, right? Th- those are some of the things that we think about as we're reading this story. And I'd love to say that, you know what, I'm in that camp of saying, David, you're being an, you're being an imbecile, right? <laughs> like, make better decisions. The sad reality is that we find ourselves in David's position more often than we care to admit. We may not have committed adultery and murder and all of these things, but there, the, the sin is still sin. And oftentimes, the natural human reaction is to hide, Right? is to run from the very one that can make you better and make you whole. And so while we may be thinking that David, David is absurd here, um, the pattern is very familiar to most of us. And rather than going to the one that can actually help us with our mess, we run from him. It's that same principle that we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right? At the very first fall of humanity, where Adam and Eve take of the fruit and God comes looking for them and says, Adam, where are you? They hid themselves from the very one that could make it right and make it better because of their guilt, because of their shame. And that's human nature, friends. And that's why we were talking very specifically last week and while we're talking this week about how we need to be sensitive to the Spirit and quick to turn to the one that can make things better. And so it's in this scene where we come into 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Nathan the prophet enters, right? And he begins to tell this story to King David. And he tells this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had everything that he could possibly need. He had lambs galore and a visitor comes to him. A traveler comes. And there was a poor man that had one little lamb That he loved like a daughter, it says. I mean, that lamb did and went everywhere with this this poor man. There was a a relationship there. There was something sacred about it. And the rich man comes and this visitor comes and steals the poor man's lamb to prepare a feast, right? Even though he had all the lambs that he wanted. And, And David, King David, hears this story and responds very indignantly. Right? He, I mean, he's upset. He's furious. He's saying that man must surely die. Right? And he'll have to repay uh, fourfold back to him. Like the, he's like he's intense. He's angry at this. And the prophet Nathan responds to David and says, "You are that man." Right? And then David's like, "Oh no." <laughs> And he gets ripped a new one, basically, by the prophet Nathan, right? He gets it handed to him. He's like, you, I mean, his sin is thrown out there. And David's response, very simply put, I have sinned before the Lord. We're going to break this down for a moment, but I want you to understand, I need you to know that I am thankful this morning for the prophetic voice. I'm thankful for prophets. I am thankful for men of God that have spoken into my life and called out sin. I can think of many times in my journey with the Lord as a, from a young man. I remember Pastor Josh. I remember very specifically I was in my garage after I had done something pretty stupid and foolish. And I just had a snarky attitude. And I was just, I mean, I was just, I was just dumb. Okay? Sin makes you stupid. Um, 
And I was completely wrong, but I remember Pastor Josh calling me up. And I mean, he, he tore into me as a young 16-year-old punk kid and called out my sin for what it was and told me I needed to get right with God. And I remember having one of the most profound encounters with the Lord on the concrete of a cold garage in Pueblo West, Colorado, after getting off the phone with my pastor and recognizing, man, have I blown it. I remember another time, both of these times were on the phone, but I was in the parking lot of a, of a, um, what, they're called post offices, where you mail letters, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was on Northern Avenue, <laughs> right there behind the old, uh, by the old King Supers, because they have King Supers in Pueblo. And uh, Pastor Jamie Montera, after I had just been a fool in ministry school, called and I probably, you got, you got a couple of those reamings, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not pleasant, are they? <laughs> okay, he never used a sword on me. But <laughs> I just remember the, the weight of a man of God with the words bringing correction to me. And I want you to understand this. You need to have voices in your life that you give permission to allow for correction to come. Because as much as you probably hate to hear this, you are not going to be right 100% of the time. There is a reason why God has gifted the church prophets and pastors and apostles and teachers. There's a reason why we exist, friends. And it's because oftentimes we can see the sin that you cannot. Or we can see the sin that you're unwilling to acknowledge. And you need to be able to embrace that correction. That is the single greatest thing that I came out of ministry school with was being able to embrace the rebuke, being able to embrace the correction from a man of God or a woman of God. Somebody that is actually in tune with the Holy Spirit, that knows this book, that is willing to call out truth in your life. And you need to know that it's appropriate to respond to that correctly. We live in a day and age where, where culture says you can't infringe upon how anybody feels or anybody's emotions because all of a sudden that makes you a bigot, all of a sudden that makes you wrong, that makes you, uh, that makes you legalistic or holier than thou. Friends, I need people in my life that are holier than me because I want to be more like Jesus. I want, to, I want people to be able to look at my life. You know, I have certain friends that I say, you have keys to my life. And if you see anything that is displeasing to the Lord or anything that is even remotely dangerous, I want you to be able to call it out and you have permission to do so. Friends, we need the prophetic voice of someone in our life, of the Lord and with someone in our life that is allowed to call out the sin and the junk that would keep us from loving Jesus rightly. Does that make sense? You guys hear my heart behind that? David learned that. And I'm so thankful that David learned that. If you read later on in his life, he writes Psalm 141. And it's a powerful psalm, but he says this, Let a righteous man strike me, that is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, that is like oil on my head. You might be saying, that that's, what does that even mean? It means that he realizes that uh, a rebuke from a righteous man is something that's good. Like oil on his head, it's like the anointing of God. Friends, we need to learn how to embrace a rebuke. We need to learn how to embrace maybe even a hard word against us because we have to come to the conclusion, we have to come to the understanding that when people are calling out our sin, it's not because they want to, they're attacking us personally, but they're actually wanting to see what's in us come to its full potential by giving glory to God rather than being destroyed by the work of the enemy. And so when I call out sin in your life, and I come alongside you and I tell you that this needs to change. It's not because I'm looking at you and I'm saying you're bad or that you're this terrible person or that, that you know what, I'm displeased with you. I just want you to know that I want to look at you the same way that Jesus looks at you and he sees the potential of the glory that he could receive if your life was surrendered to him and you were living rightly. Sin wants to kill you. <laughs> 
It's not something to entertain or play around with or just kind of sit up on a shelf and say, you know what, I'll deal with it later. And we can't continue living as a culture pretending that everybody's got their problems, everybody has their sin, and you know what, we're just kind of all working through it, everybody makes mistakes. No, we need to deal with it swiftly, friends, because God is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. We need to thank God for the prophetic voices in our life. And if you don't have someone in your life that you feel like you can trust, you need to find someone. You need to find someone. I'm not telling you all that you need to go start pointing out everybody's sin and just be like, hey, 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 do, do this. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to, be, we need, we need to position ourselves under godly voices that would speak to us about the things that are displeasing to the Lord. Does that make sense? It's important. Let's talk about David's repentance this morning. I mentioned last week um, one of my favorite words in the Greek. Whenever we encounter the word repent or repentance in the New Testament, it's this word metanoia. And it actually means more than saying, I'm sorry, right? It means more than saying, I shouldn't have or I'll never do it again. It talks about rewiring the brain, essentially. It talks about changing the way that you think about things, which means inevitably you will change your actions, right? Because our actions begin as a thought, right? Nobody just wakes up one morning and throws their life away. It begins with a subtle thought. And so we have to begin to change the way that we think. It goes back to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, right? The renewing of our mind. When we embrace repentance, it's a complete change of character, not just saying, I'm sorry, right? We established that last week. Um, it's just a brief reminder there. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 um, we have in just the descriptor or the description of the psalm there at the very beginning says that it's a it's to the chief musician it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we understand that this was a psalm that was written in response in direct response to David's actions that we've been reading about that we've been studying and from that place. From that place of repentance, where we see David responding to the rebuke of Samuel, or not the rebuke of Samuel, the rebuke of Nathan, saying, I have sinned before the Lord, we understand that this is where the words to this song, the words to this psalm came from. So the very first thing I want you to know, and we're going to kind of walk through this in chunks and in sections and break it up, um, and just kind of break it down. The very first thing that I recognized as I was reading through the Psalms, through this Psalm, beginning in verse 1 and 2, is uh, David comes to God on the terms of God's goodness with a plea for mercy. Let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. You see, before he mentions sin, he comes to the Lord on the basis and knowledge of the fact that God is good. You have to know this because you, just picture this for a second. Picture that you knew that there was a judge in town that was corrupt and was just self-seeking and out for, him, out for himself. And, you know, he maybe got a cut of every fine that was given. And you got charged with some, some, some crime. Let's say you were Tyler and you were speeding again. Okay? And you got a speeding ticket. And you had the option to pay the ticket or just come before the judge. But you knew that judge was corrupt. You knew that he was harsh. And he was going to give you, like, the full hand of the law and then probably some extra. You would never willingly turn yourself in to that judge, right? No. Just, just go with it. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't want to come before a judge that we know is wicked and harsh. Right? Most of the time, if you guys have ever stood before a judge because you did something stupid, you're asking for mercy, right? <laughs> you put on your best suit and tie, and you try to, you, 
try to clean yourself up a little bit and be a little presentable, and then you're like, please don't give me what I deserve, right? But none of us would do that with a judge that we knew was going to be harsh. And I think this is true. I think so many of us run from the Lord when we make mistakes. We run from the Lord when we fall short and we sin and we have transgression and iniquity, all these words that we're going to talk about here in a second. We run from the Lord because we don't remember that he's actually good. We don't remember he's actually kind. We don't remember that he has our best interest in mind. And I love this about David because in this, in this kind of uh, act of repentance, he remembers the fact that God is faithful. He remembers the fact that God is kind. He remembers his loving kindness. He remembers his tender mercies. And he can think of these things because he experienced them firsthand in his life and he could look back at other times where he made mistakes and remembered how God restored him. But secondly, he also could look back and remember based upon God's word, which he knew and had hidden in his heart. Those things are not those those things are not separated here. He looked back on experiential knowledge and he looked back on the knowledge of the word and he could come before God based on the fact that he was good. It's something that you and I must take advantage of. He I believe he remembered and he recalled Exodus chapter 34. You read in Exodus chapter 34 where God is giving the 10 commandments again to Moses, where he's writing them on tablets. And it, he talks about the presence of the Lord was like a pillar of cloud before him. He says this, this is what the Lord says, that the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. What does that even mean, right? We see here, God, God is, this is self-descriptors of God here. God is saying that he is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Very similar to what we're reading here. Long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But then he goes on to say, by no means clearing the guilty. What does, well, I don't get it, God, if you're forgiving them, but you're not clearing the guilty. What does that mean? If you, go, if you continue to read, I believe this is referring to, I believe this is messianic in nature. <laughs> that the guilt was not absolved, but it was placed upon his son at Calvary. And anyway, it's a, there's another message there I'm really excited to dive into. But I believe that David here was looking back. He was recalling things that he had read about the Lord. He was recalling experience that, experiences that he had with God and coming to a place of knowing that God is faithful to forgive, that he's long-suffering and kind, and that his mercies are massive, that, that, that his mercy is unending. He's mercious and merciful and gracious. Right, so he comes to the Lord and he says, have mercy upon me, O God. Not according to how good I've done or how much I've changed or how bad I feel right now. He didn't come to the Lord saying, you know what, I really messed up. My sin was great and I feel terrible about it. He comes to the Lord based upon God's goodness, his kindness, and his mercy. And that's the first thing that we see is a plea for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, recognizing I deserve, I deserve the full course of punishment and justice that you have for me, but I'm asking you to have mercy, not according to how bad I feel, but according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of tender mercies. Would you blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin? Notice here, David uses three different words for sin, does he not? He talks about transgression, he talks about iniquity, and he talks about sin. The same thing that we just read, right, in Exodus chapter 34, which we read that God has forgiveness for, right? He says that he would be forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, word for word. There's forgiveness in God. And so that brings me to the second thing. The first thing that I wanted to highlight was that he comes to God on terms of God's goodness, the second thing is that David actually acknowledges his sin. 
right? We see there that he uses three different words for sin, transgression, iniquity, and sin. But he goes on in verses 3 and 4. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, and you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You see, I, I'm reminded of what we read in chapter, um, in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, in verse 13, where David's simple response is, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's remarkably different than, uh, than how we see King Saul respond to the prophet when Samuel confronts King Saul over his sin, right? Uh, a few, uh, just a book earlier, we see a similar situation unfold where Saul disobeyed the Lord and Samuel comes and confronts Saul and rather than embracing repentance and acknowledging the fact that he had sinned before his God, um, we see him begin to make excuses, saying that he almost followed the command of the Lord. Eventually, even to the place of placing blame on other people, saying the people did this, not me. It's very interesting. But what we see in Daniel or in David's case here is that he did not shift blame. He didn't pass it. He didn't, he didn't begin to make excuses. He recognizes that he sinned. It wasn't Bathsheba, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the people, it was his own actions that caused this to come about. And he recognizes and he acknowledges that. And it's the opposite of what we saw with King Saul when he was confronted. And he uses some heavy language here to describe what he's done. He calls it transgression, he calls it iniquity, he calls it sin. I believe that he used these words intentionally. You see, uh, transgressions actually have this idea of crossing a boundary, right? It's almost like a trespass. But uh, I don't know if you have ever been around a two-year-old, but they are constantly pushing boundaries to see how far they can get, right? <laughs> My son is in this thing where he's stalling out bedtime, and he just tries to do it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more each and every night. And it's hard because he's adorable. Um, <laughs> but it is very much one of those things that's human nature. Nobody had to teach him how to be bad, right? <laughs> he just, two-year-olds know how to be bad. <laughs> anyway, I'm just, one of those things. I, I believe that transgression incorporates, incorporates this idea of like a, almost a trespass of crossing a boundary Iniquity uh, carries this idea of a twistedness or a perversion, right? He recognizes that his iniquity, this, this aspect of his character is perverse, it's twisted. And sin, and what we kind of summarize all this up in, is very simply defined as a falling short or a missing of the mark. All of these things are, are uh, descriptors of what David has done. It's descriptors of his sin, right? Uh, he crossed boundaries that God clearly established, right? I mean, he, he gave his law. David knew the rules and he broke them. And that happened because of his iniquity. That happened because of things that were in his character, the things that were in his heart that manifest into action, which were all summed up in this notion and in this uh, definition of this word called sin, which very simply just means to miss the mark. And God's mark is a bullseye, is perfection 100% of the time. And that's where we come and we find ourselves as human beings that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark just like David. And so the second thing that David does is he acknowledges his sin. He doesn't pass off blame. He doesn't try to make an excuse for what he's done. He doesn't try to he doesn't say that he acknowledges that things are bad for him. He's not sorry for what he's walking through or the repercussions of his sin. He's actually sorry for his sin and he acknowledges it. And then in the third thing that I recognize is that, uh, that, I, that I kind of pulled out of this as we read in verses 5 and 6 is David recognizes, David recognizes his need, Right? He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in that hidden part you will make me to know 
wisdom. You see, David's natural tendency from the very beginning was one towards sin. You see, his, his royal mishap here with Bathsheba, this sin, this, this kind of tragic falling was not the only thing that was grieving David here. You see, that wasn't the big problem. That wasn't the big picture. And David was actually concerned about his sin nature. He was talking about how he was conceived forth in sin. He was brought forth in sin long before the fruit of that ever manifested with Bathsheba. We see this condition. We see this problem that exists and that something has to change. Which brings us to the fourth thing that I pull out of. And this is going to kind of sum up the rest of this psalm, but it's David's prayer for cleansing. We'll read here 7 through 9. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. You see, I don't believe that David's Uh, reference to hyssop here in verse 7 is accidental. (laughs) I believe it was very intentional. You actually read in Exodus chapter 4, it comes back to the Passover where they would take hyssop branches and dip it in blood and put it over the doorway, signifying a passing over, understanding that uh, hyssop actually signifies purification with blood. And he knows that blood alone can make him whiter than snow, which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But what he doesn't know yet, what David doesn't know, is how can this actually be done fully? I believe this is messianic in promise. And I believe we have the beautiful promise of seeing the end of this promise, coming through, seeing it from a different angle, seeing it through the lens of Jesus. And instead of relying on an animal sacrifice, we get to look to Jesus Christ. We get to look to him as the one who has appeared once for all the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifices of himself. That's what Hebrews first nine, or chapter 9, verse 26 tells us. And that his blood is enough to make us whiter than snow. That's a beautiful promise here that we see. And I believe it's messianic in nature that we understand that David understood that it was not something that he could do in and of his own effort. When he says, Lord, would you purge me that I might be clean? Purge me with hyssop. He's actually talking, I believe that there's, this is a messianic foretelling here, that he's actually speaking to something that we be are to be made clean by the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone. In which we can say, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. That's, that's powerful, friends. Praise for this cleansing. But he doesn't stop there. He just doesn't want to be clean. He doesn't just want to, I would I even reckon to say, he doesn't just want to be in right standing with God, but he wants to be new before God. See, I believe a lot of us stop here. You know what? We say, oh, thank God he forgives my sin. And then we go back again and again and again like a pig wallows in the mud, right? It's this idea of, God, would you wash me? And picture yourself as a pig, right? You get, out of, you get out of the mud and the farmer comes down and sprays you down with the hose and uh, washes you off. <laughs> but the pig's natural tendency is to get back in the mud, is it not? <laughs> You have to change the very character and the nature of the being. (laughs) And that's what David is getting at here. He's saying, Lord, purify me, wash me, yes, make me clean, make me right, but I also need to be made new. And friends, it's not enough for us to just be made right without being made new. God is interested in all of it, doing it all uh, and making you a new creation because he wasn't ever interested in just giving you a get out of hell free card. He was interested in making you a new creation, one that would live empowered by the Holy Spirit to live victorious over sin, not just forgiven. goes on in verse 10 and we see David's prayer for restoration. 
to be made new. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Oh, that's powerful. We're going to talk about it. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will show transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar." David has this prayer for restoration that actually begins with him, begins with his heart, and actually culminates with all of Jerusalem. Whoa, this is going to get good, guys. Hear me. Hear me out here. You see, this first word that we see, this very first verse, create in me a clean heart, O God. You see, David felt that it wasn't enough if God simply cleaned up the heart that he had. Right? We, we talked about that. That wasn't going to work. The plea create indicated that he needed a new heart from God, a clean heart. You see, he anticipated one of the great promises to all who believe under our new covenant, that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone. Um, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right? That's the beautiful promise that we read from the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. That we would get a new heart. But I love this. He says, create in me a clean heart. Recognizing this isn't something that's in David's control. This isn't something that David can muster up. This isn't something that David can make happen. It's actually this Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, bara. It's actually the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates the heavens and the earth. It's something reserved explicitly for God and God alone to make something out of nothing. <laughs> it's crazy this, the, the way that this comes together. It's strictly used. This word describes what only God can do. He can create. It's ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty powerful. So God says that, so, so David's prayer here is, God, would you create in me? A clean heart. And then he goes on to say, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Friends, David just didn't want to be made new. He didn't just want to have a fresh start, right? 2020 is coming up, right? Everybody makes their New Year's resolutions that last for about a week, right? (laughs) Because obviously if we were going to change and we really wanted to change, that would have started when we made that decision to change. It doesn't start just because we start writing 2020, right? Just sorry to break it to you. If you were really thinking this was going to be the year, um, I pray that it starts now and you don't have to wait till Wednesday. Um, (laughs) But, uh, right, we see this fresh start. We see this fresh beginning, but that's not enough for David. He asks and he prays that there'd be a steadfast spirit renewed in him. Speaking of consistency and longevity, friends, I believe that this is something that, that we, we seldom see today, and it's heartbreaking. We see, I, I don't know how many times I've seen somebody cry tears at this altar and say, God, give me a new heart, make me clean, make me right. And then six months later, I see them backslidden doing the same things that they were do, doing before and worse. Friends, my prayer is that as believers, my prayer is as those that would come before the Lord and ask for a clean heart, ask for a new heart to be made in us, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't just sit back and stay in that place of enjoying God's mercy and enjoying God's goodness and living in that without actually having a steadfast spirit, without desiring some consistency to follow it up. It says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David's primary thought, 
process when it comes to repentance is that nearness with God has to be restored. That was, that was what he longed for. That was what he felt when we were reading the Psalms last week and we were looking through that space between chapter 11 and chapter 12 where David spent probably upwards of a year not with God. <laughs> saying, Talking about how God was far from him and distant from him. His sin was always before him. It physically made him sick in his body. And David, coming to his sentence, coming to his senses, because of the words of a man of God that were very pointed and very sharp, recognizes how far from God he's actually come. And above anything else, he desires nearness to be restored. He says, <laughs> he says, don't take, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because you remember, David saw that happen firsthand with King Saul. <laughs> it wasn't beyond the Lord. <laughs> but because he comes, he's repentant. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes it's against God that he has sinned. Comes before him and makes a place a places a heightened plea upon the Lord to not remove his nearness. He wants nearness with God restored. As you continue to read this, we, we read about some tremendous things that happen. I want, I want to be very clear. When repentance is embraced, <laughs> like we see here in the life of David in Psalm 51, sin is dealt with first and foremost. Right? Sin's acknowledged. We come to God based upon his mercy and his goodness, right? First and foremost. Not based upon how, ba how bad we feel or how much we don't want to serve the, or face the repercussions for our actions, right? We come to God because he's good. We come to God because he's merciful. We acknowledge our sin, right? Secondly, um, we recognize our need. We pray for cleansing. And then we embrace God's restoration for our lives, right? Those are the simple simple way to kind of break it down. But in that, sin gets dealt with and nearness to God is restored. That's kind of the big culminating thing. That's something that is exciting. Friends, if you feel far from the Lord, if you feel like there's distance between you and God, if you feel like love has, has kind of uh, dwindled or passion has faded, I would encourage you to embrace the model that we find here in Psalm 51 and repent. Sure, maybe you didn't kill somebody. Maybe you're not sleeping around. Maybe you didn't have this great tragic failure. But sin is sin and it will separate you from God. And it will fester and it will grow, friends. I would encourage you to embrace and model this life of repentance on a daily basis because with it, sin gets dealt with. With it, sin is exposed. And nearness to God is restored. But subsequently, a few other tremendous things also happen, which is good news, which I'm excited about. The first of which I believe is supernatural joy is restored. Supernatural joy is given back. If you find yourself living in this kind of perpetual state of discouragement and depression and frustration and disappointment, can I tell you that is not how God intended the Christian walk to look. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Paul suffered hardship, but in the midst of it, he was able to pin words like rejoice always. <laughs> Written from prison. <laughs> Friends, there is a joy that should mark the life of the believer. There is a joy that should mark your everyday happenings, the way you conduct yourself. If that's missing, friends, I would encourage you to figure out what's going on. Don't take that as just a sign that everything's okay and God just made me this way. There is a joy. I'm not talking about being perpetually happy and having the smile on your face all the time. But there is a joy and a hope that we can have in Jesus. 
and it's supernatural. It's called the joy of our salvation. <laughs> Twice David mentions it here that we should have, he, he asks for the gift of the Lord that, that there should be, that he would hear joy and gladness. But then he also asks that he would have a joy of salvation be returned to him. I believe that that is supernaturally given when repentance is embraced. But secondly, I believe purpose is defined. I believe that David here regained vision of his calling as king. I believe that he regained vision of what God had created him to do. But at the very basic level that I believe applies to all of us, that his purpose, that he was reminded of it, when he says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. I like the New Living Translation because it says I will show transgressors your ways. Actually, the Hebrew here carries a condemnation of teaching by action, teaching by demonstration. So what David is saying here is after all of this transpires, after you restore the joy of my salvation to me, I am going to show transgressors how to live right. I'm going to show transgressors what the mercy of God looks like manifest in someone's life because you know I've made mistakes, I've messed up, I've done wrong, but I've been given an opportunity to bring glory to God. He says that there would be a, a demonstrative action here in his life to show people God's way. That's powerful, friends. And that sinners would be converted. <laughs> wow, you want to, you, your evangelism not like really kicking it these days? Look at this as an example. Um, because let me tell you, <laughs> uh, no one wants to serve a Jesus. No one wants to serve a God that is not powerful enough to change your life. <laughs> and if we're not living a repentant life in which we're embracing the transformative power of the Holy Spirit and the joy of salvation at work in our everyday life, we're never going to effectively walk out and demonstrate a life that's going to make sinners want to turn to Jesus. Does that make sense? Tracking with me there? But what I'm talking about here is that he has a purpose that is redefined. And he remembers why God made him. And he sees this as an opportunity to actually put into action what God's done internally in his life. Friends, if you've embraced repentance, if you embraced this, this concept of coming to God with your junk, with your mess, and handing it over to him, acknowledging it, and asking God to make you clean and make you right and restore joy unto you and give you a new heart, create in you a new heart, then you will live differently and by way of living differently, you are going to model this of teaching transgressors the ways of the Lord and sinners will be converted. I believe we don't see people coming to Jesus in mass because we have not seen repentance in mass in the church. We've gotten maybe to the place where we're saying, sorry, get me into heaven, but we're not seeing that 180 degree turnaround of lifestyles actually looking different. But the last thing that I really want to pull from Psalm 51 here, and one of, the, one of those tremendous things that I think is uh, a direct uh, benefit of repentance that we read here, is that it paves the way for a corporate move of God. Individual repentance, repentance that begins individually in you as a person, I believe has the power to pave the way for a corporate move of God. I believe Pagosa Springs can encounter a radical move of the Holy Spirit. I believe that there can be a powerful move of the presence of God and the word of God can go forth with power and with might when we embrace repentance personally. That's what we see. That's how this psalm ends. That he responds to the Lord saying, Do your good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. And then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, that they shall offer bowls on your altar. What David is saying here 
is that would you do good to Jerusalem? Do your good to Jerusalem. That's my prayer for Pagosa. God, would you have your way? Would you have your will? Would you do your good to Pagosa Springs? That righteousness might be established. That praise might go forth. That sacrifice might be made that is pleasing to you in this community. But it begins with have mercy on me, O God. It begins with his loving kindness. It begins with us recognizing that he's good and us acknowledging the things that hurt his heart. Friends, my prayer for 2020, my prayer for this new year, is not just that you'd get a clean slate to start over with. I believe God wants to take your mess. I believe God wants to take your situation. I believe he wants to take your shortcomings and your failures, and he wants to make them new. I don't believe that he just wants to completely wipe over the past. (laughs) I believe he wants to blot out your guilt. I believe that he wants to blot out your sin. But I believe he wants to use what you've been walking through. He wants to use what you've been experiencing and let it serve as a foundation to go into this new year with tremendous momentum. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.